welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Oh, very nice. Very well done. Oh, I saw that grin, Tammy. That was, that was good. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful music. Folks, if you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Today we're going to have part three of Justified by Faith. James, that is a half-brother of Jesus, uh, same mother, different father. Uh, of course, God is Jesus' father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, but half-brother to the Lord Jesus. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Uh, today, he's going to add his approval to this council. As you like, likely recall from last Sunday, you know, it's almost certain James had already, by this time, uh, written his epistle, the epistle that bears his name, James, about being justified through faith alone, so long as that faith doesn't remain alone. Faith must work. It must produce some fruit. And uh, we should note that among this Jerusalem council, uh, James is also the standout traditionalist of the group. He is a Jew of Jews. Uh, Those who are experts in biblical languages remind us uh, James's epistle or his letter that he wrote that's included in the Bible, it's very proverbial and his use of grammar is very Jewish in both thought and in style. He even addresses the letter to the 12 tribes dispersed. Those who had to flee due to persecution. He writes to the 12 tribes. Again, he's very Jewish. And uh, he makes no reference to this Jerusalem council, uh, which causes theologians to conclude that the book of James must have been written at some time prior to Acts chapter 15. James was likely the first to write a letter uh, contained in the Bible, and he writes about God's grace through faith even before the Apostle Paul. Uh, Apostle Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians is probably second. And when we consider he wrote prior to this Jerusalem council, it becomes fascinating then that uh, even James's letter to the 12 tribes does not even mention circumcision nor keeping of the Mosaic law. Rather, James describes the word of God and God's law as a mirror, a mirror through which we examine ourselves. James twice in his letter refers to it uh, as the law of liberty, even before this council. So as James describes the word of God's law as a mirror for our self-examination, Similarly, Paul describes it in Galatians 3, verse 24, as our tutor 
to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So uh, although James comes off as the, the quintessential Jew in the bunch, his Jewishness does not conflict with the theology of Barnabas or Paul or of Peter. Instead, James will reinforce the judgment offered by Peter last Sunday. And he cites the ancient prophets as evidence. James tells the brethren, what you have just heard from Peter, Paul and Barnabas, about the Gentiles being justified by faith, uh, this is exactly what the prophets of old, the prophets of Israel, had always foretold. Reading from Acts chapter 15 and verse 12, all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, James says, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has been uh, has in every city those who preach him, preach Moses, since he, Moses, is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So the law, he says, has been read uh, every, every Sabbath uh, throughout Israel. They'll touch on that next week. Just like Jesus always had, uh, and as repeatedly practiced by Peter, we see it at Pentecost, and by the other apostles, James now redirects this gathering of the church to heed what is our ultimate and final authority that rests solely in God's word. The holy scriptures, uh, i.e. the words of the prophets, those who spoke for God to Israel. Clearly in verse 12, uh, Paul and Barnabas related for the church, you know, all the signs and wonders that God had performed among the Gentiles. Uh, likewise, in verse 14, Simon Peter assured that God has testified through pouring out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles in the exact same way that he had among the Jews. But now James returns the entire assembly to the source of authority that matters what does the Bible 
say? What do the scriptures say? When we think back, this is exactly what Christ our Savior always did. What has been written? What do the scriptures say? How do they read to you? Jesus was always uh, referring to what is written. In verse 13, James commands their attention, you know, brethren, listen to me now. And to hear his voice, the voice of James, it's vital. He, he'd long been the traditionalist amongst the Jews. Uh, if you can recall the narrative from Galatians chapter 2, there James had been at the root of a previous conflict in Antioch. Now, James is credited as the one who had sent certain men to Antioch uh, who were not eating with the Gentiles. Galatians 2 verse 12 describes these visitors as certain men sent from James. They were the ones whom Peter and Barnabas even got carried away with uh, in the hypocrisy of not eating with the Gentiles. They had refrained from eating with Gentiles. Uh, So then... James is listed in Galatians chapter 2 as being a a contributing influence to that previous schism over food. Yet we must also remember that earlier conflict over dietary preferences happened well before Paul and Barnabas ever departed on their first missionary journey. As we learned two weeks ago, after that dietary disagreement, Paul and Barnabas traveled secretly to Jerusalem to hold a private meeting with the apostles where they settled the issue of the law and got circumcision all ironed out behind the scenes. That previous meeting is also when James, Peter, and John extended what is called the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, uh, commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go to the Gentiles. That first Jerusalem meeting, the private meeting, occurred before Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey to Galatia. Fast forward now two years, or approximately two years. After Paul and Barnabas returned, after evangelizing the Gentiles in Galatia, a second group of Jewish legalists visited Antioch, talked about them two weeks ago, who attempted to mandate circumcision now. Paul and Barnabas, of course, in a dispute, defeated them handily. And it is the second group of legalists that prompted this Jerusalem council. Uh, If you want proof, or further proof, glance quickly at verse 24, where James professes. He says, We didn't send this second group. Rather, the letter that James and the apostles will craft to send to Antioch will state this, uh, We have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, James says, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. So James strives to distance himself to reassure the brethren in Antioch that that 
This isn't also a result of him. Uh, he, we had no hand in this, says James. They were brethren from Judea. We had no hand in it. I played no role, says James, in sending this second group that demanded circumcision. Basically, they acted on their own. At the same time, James realizes he had, in the past, been tagged as sort of a hardliner on dietary restrictions. And it's for this reason that his voice resonates so loudly at the conclusion of this Jerusalem council. In effect, what his statement will do is affirm that even James now fully embraces the Gentiles. Why? It's because James now sees how Scripture fully anticipated the Lord of Israel would become Savior to all nations. The prophets had declared it. Listen to this passage where uh, the Lord God Yahweh speaks through the prophet Hosea. Hosea prophesied about 750 years before Christ to the northern kingdom. And Hosea 2 verse 23 says, quote, I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, says the Lord. And they will say, you are my God. Go ahead and say it. You are my God. Prophecy fulfilled. <laughs> Gentiles calling out to the Lord as their God. Forgiveness of sins and salvation has been granted to the Gentiles, even to the very ends of the earth. We saw during our early, earlier scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 45, God says, gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge, uh, uh, those who carry about their wooden idol, they pray to a God who cannot save. Isaiah says, consider you pagan people, who you've prayed to, woods of carving, statues of stone, false gods that can never save. Now come to your senses. The prophets of Israel had long assured pagan Gentiles. Gentiles are those who did not descend genetically from Abraham. Uh, that the prophets told Israel the Gentiles will believe and turn to God uh, when Christ the Messiah had come. So through Isaiah, the Lord asks Israel, who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Not unclear, is it? Israel had always known that there's only one God of all the earth. 
Therefore, is not the Savior of Israel also the Savior of the Gentiles? Of course he is. He's the God of all nations. Therefore, next Sunday we will learn in verse 22 how everyone in Jerusalem now falls on the same page after this speech by James. Verse 22 will state, quote, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. What seemed good? Craft a letter, send a delegation to Antioch, and in verse 25, their letter to Antioch will say, We in Jerusalem have all become of one mind. Do you remember on a previous occasion how I told you that those legalistic uh, believing Pharisees back in verse 5 would eventually come around? Well, since this letter to Antioch states the entire Jerusalem church has now become of one mind, this assures that they truly were believing Pharisees. Pharisees who had believed will fold their hand of circumcision cards after James speaks. Why? Because they are Pharisees who believed the truth of the Lord Jesus, and having received God's Spirit within them, they yield both to what the apostles and the scriptures say. Still, James emerges as a significant player here. Because he had, uh, by this time, kind of become the de facto leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, He'll be last to speak. Uh, He was kind of like the E.F. Hutton of his day. If you're under 40, you have no idea (laughs) what I'm talking about. Well, when James talks, people listen. Why would the Jerusalem church want to hear from James? Uh, Well, it's because long before there ever was an Instagram, even before Al Gore invented the internet, James was an influencer among the Jews. Everybody stops to listen. What's James going to say? You know, many believe that James is the last to speak because he is the de facto leader of the church. That may be true. But a second reason everybody wants to hear from James is because they all know that if there were to remain one holdout, one hard case among the leadership against the Gentiles, it would have been James. Because he was so rigidly Jewish. But what does James determine now, he too is filled with the Spirit of God. And James declares in verse 15, full assimilation of both the Jews and the Gentiles into Christ's church without distinction 
is what the prophets have always promised from long ago. And Christians, both Jew and Gentile, no longer shall practice the law as prescribed to Israel at Mount Sinai. James agrees God no longer makes any distinction. Uh, Therefore, James announces with a few small stipulations, I'm all in. What are the four stipulations for the Gentiles? They are avoid things defiled by idols, fornication, eating of things strangled, and blood. Why does James propose only these specific restrictions? To find out, you'll have to come back next week. I won't have time to address the letter uh, that will be delivered to Antioch uh, today, uh, but consider between now and next Sunday. In the context of this discussion, is James establishing his own new moral code for the church age? Is James declaring, you know, forget the Ten Commandments as long as everybody obeys James's four rules for Christian living. You know, actually some liberal theologians suggest this. They, they propose we should codify James's statement from verse 20 in perpetuity. In their distorted interpretation, some liberals insist verse 20 is an updated ethical code ratified by this Jerusalem council for the church age. Therefore, if Christians will simply avoid these four items, idols, immorality, things that are strangled, and blood, every other sin from this point forward receives a green light from James and the Jerusalem council. Is that what's happening here? Supposedly then, you know, other outdated moral codes like uh, thou shalt not murder, it's expired. Go ahead, shed blood. Uh, James and the council don't prohibit murder in these four. Likewise, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Is it now, just cuss up a storm. Speak however you like, Uh, no restraint whatsoever, uh, because apparently or evidently those commands no longer matter. You know, steal like a bandit. James didn't mention anything in these four that would prohibit stealing. And since God's other commandments aren't restated in James's, you know, fab four, they must not be binding anymore. We no longer keep them. Is that what is happening here? Thank you. Are James and the church adopting and prescribing a whole new abbreviated moral code, just these four things, and then just condone all other types of lawlessness? Look at it in this light. Has now eating things strangled? 
Has that surpassed blasphemy and replaced murder on the priority list of things we should avoid? Surely not. Supplying a shorter, you know, easier to remember revised moral code is not what James and the council are doing. If you need further evidence, just read the book of James. James's letter codifies some of the highest ethical standards for Christian living found anywhere in the Bible. And future letters that will soon be written by the apostles Peter and Paul and John and Jude and others will actually restate and reinforce numerous strict moral codes or parameters for Christians as the church continues to move forward into uh, the subsequent centuries. So, So to suggest that verse 20 supplies Christians with a new moral code, only four things we have to avoid. Folks, it is not even rational. Not even rational. What then is this list of four? Four. You'll have to come back next week. For today, we'll simply turn to look one last time at what the prophets have always said, beginning in verse 15, and then we can commemorate our Lord's new covenant through his crucified body uh, by sharing of the bread and the passing of the cup. Final authority for this Jerusalem council will rest upon the shoulders of what God has spoken through his prophets. In regard to Gentiles, you know, Peter had his dream. A sheet coming down from heaven three different times uh, is Peter's private experience, his dream, what the Jerusalem council will base its decision on. No. No. Paul and Barnabas have testified uh, rightly that many miracles have occurred among the Gentiles. Uh, Are signs and wonders what this Jerusalem council will base its judgment upon? No. How about if someone steps forward in the church randomly and declares, God's given me a word. Include the Gentiles. God just spoke to me. Should that swing the vote, prompting the church to fully embrace the Gentiles? Is there even a vote? Is the general congregation invited, you know, to submit motions, recommendations on the matter? You know, I'd like to make a motion to preserve circumcision as a Symbolic memorial for all generations of Christians to follow. Do I hear a second? All in favor say aye. We have 51% the motion carries. Circumcision is adopted in perpetuity. Or 51% circumcision has been defeated. Well then, the other 49% say Oh, we'll just start our own church on the other side of town 
that gives proper honor to circumcision? No. There's not going to be a separate church that preaches circumcision and dietary restrictions across the street or across town. There won't be one church practicing the Mosaic law and another one that doesn't. Christ only has one church. What then serves as the authoritative basis forever removing the yoke of the law and circumcision? What serves as the authority that receives 100% approval from the congregation and makes them all of one mind? The church universal submits itself to the apostles' teaching because the apostles are in harmony and the ancient prophets agree. Let me restate this. Christ's church submits itself to original, historic, apostolic teaching, which remains in harmony with what the scriptures have always said. That's the authority. It's apostolic authority and scriptural authority. Everyone is of the same mind. James appeals to scriptural authority in verse 15, saying, With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So according to James, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and 100% of the church in attendance, this inclusion of the Gentiles fulfills God's promise to rebuild the tabernacle of David, meaning the house of David or the tent of David, your translation might say. God's promise to rebuild the house of David, which had fallen. So that now, not Jew alone, but the rest of mankind may also see salvation. Jesus said with all authority, Matthew 28, got read earlier, Go therefore to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go to all the nations with this, as David's house is rebuilt. When did the house of David, speaking of his royal lineage there, his kingly lineage, when did the house of David fall? Who was the last in the line of Davidic kings to reign over Israel prior to Christ? It's King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah, 
He was blinded by his captors, taken to Babylon, where he died in prison. After Judah, that is the southern kingdom, the last king was Zedekiah. After Judah was exiled, the house of David had set vacant since 586 B.C. Since 586 B.C., there was no Davidic king to sit on David's throne and rule over Israel until who was born. When did the house of King David be resurrected? We'll hint there. When was it resurrected? Trying to make it easy. The tent, tabernacle, the house of David remained in ruin until King Jesus was born. Remember the Magi? They followed the star out in the east. They arrived in Jerusalem and visited King Herod. Herod, of course, was an imposter. He wasn't a descendant of David at all. Uh, They asked him, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Because Herod wasn't born anything except an imposter. So, So here's the question. Since God is, according to James, now rebuilding this house of David through including Gentiles, who is the king that must now rule from David's throne? King Jesus is he who rules. Be careful. Be careful because the promise in verse 16, look at it, it's not in our future. James says the rebuilding is present. You may hear some preaching claim that this promise remains in our future because verse 16 says, after these things, I will return to rebuild the house of David. So you'll hear alternate ideas that suggest, you know, rebuilding David's house must then occur after Christ returns a second time, they say. Verse 16 will happen after these things. They claim to be, you know, staunch literalists of the Bible. Or after the church age, they will say uh, that we are already in. So David's house, in that view, is yet to be rebuilt in our future. What is the critical flaw with that interpretation? That fails to recognize verses 16 through 18 are promises God made to Israel and Judah through ancient prophets. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Verses 16 through 18, it's an amalgamation, a a combination of Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And they prophesied centuries before Christ was ever born. 
They were all pre-exile prophets. Pre-fall of David's house. Who proclaimed God's judgment and predicted the fall of Israel and the house of David. These promises through those prophets stated that after Israel and Judah were exiled into captivity, and after their kingdoms were destroyed, ultimately 586 BC, after that, God would return to rebuild the house of David in their future. That's why the prophet Amos says, after these things, 700 years before Christ. God would rebuild to build the house of David in their future. And that God is rebuilding the house of David would include all the nations is now. You follow me? Here's the question. In verse 16, does God's promise saying, after these things I will return and rebuild, describe our future or the future of the generation sent into exile. Yeah. God's promises to Israel, they're between 600 and 750 BC that God will return to rebuild is fulfilled, says James, through Jesus today even in 49 AD at this Jerusalem council. It was in exiled Israel's future that God would return and rebuild. Not ours. Of course, he's still continuing to build. If your study Bible notes state that this promise to rebuild the tent of David uh, yet remains in our future, you can go ahead and tear that page of the your study Bible out. This promise to rebuild David's kingdom was made prior to 586 BC, before King Zedekiah was the last Davidic king to be dethroned and deposed, assuring that King Jesus would rise on the third day to rule. Christ's resurrection initiates the rebuilding of the kingdom. What did King Jesus proclaim in Mark 1 verse 15? We read, now after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Acts 2 verse 30. I mentioned it when we were back there several months ago. Acts 2 verse 30 says that upon his resurrection, Christ fulfilled God's, quote, promise to seat an heir upon David's throne. It's fulfilled. We, we aren't waiting for God's kingdom. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into God's kingdom. Verses 16 to 18 are not future to us, but were future for exiled Israel and experienced by us once you are justified 
in Christ through faith alone. As God has, verse 17, taken a people from Gentiles called by his name. This is now. What is the final declaration by James, Peter, and the Jerusalem Council? It is that Gentiles, is it that Gentiles must convert to Judaism, become Jewish proselytes or converts? No. And be justified by keeping the law? No. Never. What Peter, James, Paul, and Barnabas have declared is that we are all justified by faith and that the Jews are saved and enter into Christ's kingdom, the house of David, just like the Gentiles, through faith alone, not by the law. Romans 3 verse 28 asks, where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain, writes Paul, that a man or woman is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is it, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Said all the prophets, right? Yes, Paul writes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. God is one and the same. He's one in unity. Therefore, as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a minute, uh, we have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are one. Christ is building a house, the heir of David, a house, his church, that is one. And we all, Jew and Gentile, celebrate a faith and share a faith that is one. All Christians are justified on the same basis of faith in Christ alone. What does our faith believe? We believe that we're all sinners, both by nature and by choice. We all stand condemned before God for what we've done because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, we are deserving of death because the wages, what we earn from our sin, what we deserve is death. And the evidence that we all have sinned is that all die. And Hebrews 9.27 assures, it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes the judgment. But the good news of the gospel is this. God sent his son to live life and to give life. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born in human flesh. Scripture says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So what we enjoy in Christ as Savior is a sinless man and a loving God 
who gave his life for us. Jesus became just like one of us, except that he never sinned, so he can redeem every one of us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and therefore he died on a cross to pay the wages that we have earned, that through death he would pay the ransom for our sins. They laid Christ in a tomb. We learned in evangelism training this morning, you got to add a resurrection in there. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now he is seated at the right hand of God, uh, where as king he reigns over all who receive him by faith. Colossians 1.13, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have forgiveness of sins. And now I ask the elders deacons to come forward to serve us the Lord's Supper. Today we are going to to recite together a summary of the historic Christian faith as it is recorded in what we call the Apostles' Creed. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you have confessed him by mouth, Jesus as Lord, if you have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Scripture assures you will be saved. In that case, we invite you to share the faith that we have in common through the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Anthony, would you pray after we recite the Apostles' Creed? Let's recite. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.